Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx, and we're back with one of our fortnightly topical podcasts. Now, there's only really one story in town this week when it comes to British politics, and that is the soaring cost of, well, just about everything. Consumer price inflation jumped to 9% in the 12 months to April, up from 7% in March, and it's the highest level it's reached since 1982. There's something of a sense of helplessness here on the part of the government. After spending two years stepping in to save whole sectors of the economy, support millions of people's wages and borrow hundreds of billions of pounds into the bargain, last night Rishi Sunak said, there is no measure any government could take, no law we could pass, that can make these global forces disappear overnight. Which is probably the typical politician's trick of setting the bar ridiculously high. Uh, Don't despair though. Here at CapEx and the Centre for Policy Studies, we're here to help. And this week, the CPS has produced a briefing paper setting out all the things the government could do or not do to take the strain off household finances. And today we're joined by one of that report's authors, our senior researcher, Carl Williams. Hello, Carl. Hello, John. And we're also welcoming back to the podcast, James Hayward, who is our head of welfare and opportunity. Hello, James. Hi, John. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Um, we're going to start with a kind of bit of an overview of the inflation situation how much of this, Rishi Sunak in that quote there mentioned that, you know, there's no measure we could take. But how much of this, James, do we think is kind of in the government's gift in terms of what's feeding inflation and those global factors that um, Rishi Sunak mentioned? Uh, very little. I think I think the Chancellor is is uh, probably understandably very frustrated because, uh, you know, he's been dealt quite a difficult hand and lots of other Similar countries to us are facing um, the same problem with uh, rising prices. And so uh, it's, it's very difficult for the government to um, deal with simply because um, if the government was to simply say, oh, well, we're going to you know, offset the, the cost, the rising cost of these things for households, then the risk, um, as the Chancellor sees it, is, is that uh, he ends up sort of stoking inflation further. Um, and just pumping more money in is going to lead to an inflationary spiral that makes the problem worse. And the one thing that everybody's hoping through all this is that this is only a transitory problem. So the the last thing we want is to embed the problem and and, and lead to a sort of long-lasting inflation problem for, for a couple of years rather than just this year. 
I mean, how, Carl, do you think that's a reasonable argument in terms of the government spending now will actually, like James said, will just make things worse and kind of prolong the agony? Indeed, yes. Um, I think, just going back to what James was saying there, uh, it's helpful to identify where these inflationary pressures are coming from. And there's probably three or four main ones, and three of those are very definitely beyond the government's immediate control. Uh, the obvious one is energy prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and this yeah, we'll, we'll come on to the, the nitty-gritty of energy in a bit. So. Yep. Um, the second is food, largely because of the situation in Ukraine. And the third one is consumer goods, um, anything that we might expect to be shipped over from China, where, of course, the mega cities are in lockdown at the moment because of COVID. Um, and then fourthly, and where you could say there is potentially more control, is money supply. Yeah, so for that's basically the Bank of England's remit, though, rather yes, than governments, isn't it? Indeed, yes. I mean, how much can the government actually do, though? We know the Bank of England's been independent for the last 25 years. I mean, are there kind of signals that the Treasury can give of what they want them to, them to do? Or? Um, I mean, they, they can. I and mean, ultimately, the, the bank's remit is set by the Chancellor, right? So um, it, it, it's not like the bank is independent and there's nothing at all that the government can do about it. The government could mandate the bank to do things if it wants to, but I think that... The Chancellor, from what the Chancellor has been saying, and he, he has been coming out and uh, backing the Bank of England and the Governor in the face of some criticism from Conservatives, including quite senior Conservatives, um, about, uh, you know, acting too little too late um, on interest rates. Um, but, you know, the the Treasury mindset, I think, is, is that um, anything that undermines bank independence is is probably the, the, the wrong way to go because it would set a precedent um, that has not been broken for the last quarter century ever since the um, bank was given its independence. Yeah, so I mean, we can we could talk about the kind of ins and outs of, of monetary policy until uh, the cows come home. But I want to talk about um, employment because James, you're, as I said, you're a head of welfare and opportunity. A big part of that is employment benefit system um, one of the sort of strange features of the British job market at the moment is that we have very low unemployment, much like during the kind of... We've had low in, unemployment pretty much since about 2010, 2011, really. I mean, it's been a sort of prolonged feature. Mm. But it's not like what we saw... I mentioned in the intro, it's the highest inflation rate for 40 years. Back in the 80s, when Mrs Thatcher was battling inflation, the employment, the unemployment rate hit sort of 12%. I mean... But what, what's going on here? Why do we have this combination of high inflation and low unemployment? Doesn't this kind of contradict economics 101, uh, the sort of textbook relationship between those two things? Um, no, not necessarily. Um, I mean, it, it, sort of classic economic theory would, would kind of suggest that actually having low unemployment and high inflation just suggests that you've got an overheating economy, basically. Um, and actually the sort of the... It was, um, see, you know, it, it was a sort of um, a big shock, really, in the 1970s when stagflation came along, because the idea was this wasn't something that should happen, right? Um, that if you've got high inflation, you should have low unemployment, because the high inflation is normally as a result of um, uh, the economy overheating, essentially, and running hot. Uh, the issue we've got at the moment is you wouldn't look at our economy right now and say that we've got 10% inflation or 9% inflation that's going up uh, because we've got, you know, a booming economy. Um, and a lot of the inflationary pressures are coming from 
you know, global factors that are not being led by um, the sort of domestic economic outlook, which is looking increasingly pessimistic. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's not necessarily that unusual, um, but the unusual thing is that we've got high employment or at least low unemployment, um, but the economy is still looking quite unhealthy and we're increasingly looking like we might, you know, very soon dip back into a recession. How much of this, sorry, just to delve a little bit more, how much of the employment figures is being flattered by people who have just removed themselves from the workforce altogether? Are we getting a bit of an illusory idea of the state of unemployment? Yeah, so that is part of the picture um, that there's, and, and, you know, there's a lot of sort of debate within the kind of labour market wonk world about what exactly is uh, driving these things and looking at the stats. But basically, over the course of the pandemic, uh, it looks like um, a mixture of um, people who are sort of in their 50s and 60s who were previously in the labour market have chosen to leave the labour market. Um, and there's also a, um, a particularly high number of people leaving the labour market because of sickness and, and ill health. Um, and so that's meant that the overall participation rate, as we call it, the pe- number of people who are economically active um, has fallen, which is sort of flattering the figures. So they're not as you know rosy as they sound when the government says that unemployment's lower than it's been for however many years. Mm. Sure. Um, Carl, you mentioned the, f- the four kind of main categories of things that are feeding inflation. So we had energy, food, consumer goods and a monetary policy. Um, most of which are, as we said at the top, kind of out with uh, uh, the government's control. There's not much that the Chancellor can do to open up the port of Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Um, but within the ambit of what this government can do, uh, which is quite a lot of things, you know, entirety of tax and regulation, um, you mentioned in your, your, you did a CapEx piece that accompanies the report. Um, you say the essential point here is for the government to stop adding any further costs. Um, And what kind of things do we have in mind there? I should mention this is a a jointly authored CPS report. So Carl is one of many people who've chipped in here. Yeah, I I think this is a a really obvious point to pick up. Like at least let's not make things actively worse through proactive government interventions or or measures. And I I know one area you feel very strongly about is uh, buy one, get one free bans. It's just it's a totemic policy of the kind of nonsense um, syntax agenda that I dislike basically. It's not just the buy one get one free thing but yeah you're there right. Is a, there so is adding on food costs that. at a time like this is just crazy. Yeah I mean um, there's one report we looked at whilst uh, writing this and it suggested that these policies would add £160 to a household's annual shopping bill. Right exactly. I mean there was some other modelling I think there's even modelling about kind of meal deals and stuff like that as well where if you um, you're adding, you can add sort of 50% to, um, if, if someone has them regularly, which I know a lot of people do, and you remove the meal deal, then that could end sort of add sort of 50% to someone's, um, someone's bill as well. Uh, there's things like the, that we've already done, like the sugar tax as well. I mean, there's just, there's, there's the plastic packaging tax, which we mentioned in our, our report, which is, um, coming in. James, one of the big input costs, um, is on childcare. There was a report out early this week that said the average cost... Um, to have a two-year-old in nursery five days a week is £13,718 
a year, which is, uh, you know, enough to send a kid to a, a sort of middling private school, and we're expecting sort of working parents to be able to, to pay this. Now, there are government policies that offset this. You can get 33 hours for a two-year-old and things like this. I mean, what can we do on the kind of, on the regulation side? We've talked about childcare ratios a bit on the podcast, but what else, what can the government do to bring down this, um, the cost of childcare? Yeah, so obviously at the moment, most of the government's childcare policies tend to revolve around subsidy, basically. And there's lots of different ways that they do that. Free hours, tax-free childcare, you can get 85% of your childcare costs covered if you're on universal credit, those sorts of things. But we have... I think the second highest childcare costs um, in Europe, and that is being uh, driven in part by excessive regulation of the of the childcare sector. Now, that isn't just the ratios thing, but that is a big part of it. But it's it's also things like uh, the qualifications that we require childminders to have before people are actually uh, allowed to look after children. Um, that. I think some people would be surprised, actually, that the the uh, level of education, essentially, that, that people need to go through before they can, you know, look, look after small children. And I think with that and with the, you know, the, the child, child ratios thing that the government has at least said it's going to look at now and possibly make some, some sort of limited changes to, the way that I always sort of look at it is, well, because uh, some people sort of say, well, actually, we don't think that childminders will change their standards anyway, and they'll keep the same ratios and so on, and they'll make sure that they that they still have the same uh, standards as we as they do at the moment. So it's not going to change anything. But point is, well, why not just give people the choice, right? And it may be that you know people who are relatively well off um, and in well-paid jobs are happy to pay a bit more for a higher standard of childcare. But when there are people who uh, the cost of childcare is meaning that employment doesn't actually make sense for them at all, um, and it's essentially shutting them out of the labour market, anything that we can do, surely, to uh, bring the cost of childcare down in a way that is you know, reasonable and safe yeah. should, it is worth looking at. And also, it would kind of em- you mentioned childminders, it potentially, if you change the regulations, it sort of opens up an entire new sector within a sector. I mean, we have some fairly crazy regulations at the moment. There was a story about two um, policemen who watched each other's kids getting, I think they were arrested or something for like illegally providing childcare, which is exactly the kind of informal arrangements that loads of people probably actually have anyway. But, you know, it's, uh, I think, again, probably my favourite hobby horse on this podcast, but the cost of, um, the cost of just land as well feeds into high childcare costs because premises cost a hell of a lot to rent and that feeds through and so on. Um, another one, so childcare's a, a, quite a good one because it's, it's not to talk about because it's not really something where you can say, oh, this is to do with international pressures. If anything, you could look at in other countries and say, well, they do things differently and it's not like kids in France or Sweden or Denmark are, you know, suffering en masse because they have different, yeah. exactly. And it's worth mentioning that this was looked at in the coalition years as well and was spiked by the Lib Dems. So people have known this is an issue for a long time. Yeah, and if you just blame taken... Nick Clegg, that's basically, <laughs> yeah. But it's just taken this crisis to really, hopefully, compel people to seriously address the issue. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Now, Carl, I want to get on to something. We, we, the last time you came on the podcast, we discussed um, this a bit, um, which is energy costs. Now, the kind of consensus is like, oh, this is international wholesale costs and stuff like that. But it's fair to say there are things we've done in the long term that have made it, that have exacerbated it. The one that I, we had a piece earlier this week from Andy Mayer over at the Institute of Economic Affairs talking about the energy price cap, which is one of the most kind of illusory names for a policy <laughs> I think I've ever come across, because it doesn't really do that much to cap individual households' bills. But I just want to talk about something that perhaps people haven't heard that much about, which is storage. Now... We had this, uh, Ed Conway from Sky News was tweeting earlier this week about how we have a quite strange situation in Britain at the moment where we have a bit of a glut of gas, but we don't have enough um, capacity to actually store it. I mean, what's, what's going on here? Is this about sort of decades of, of mis, misguided policy? Or? Uh, I wouldn't quite say decades, but a, a decade of misguided policy, say. Okay. Um, sort of uh, moving towards the green energy transition and perhaps going a bit too fast on that and allowing gas facilities and storage to fall into disrepair or be closed down. Um, so and is that just about kind of penny pinching or like did we think we were moving towards a different kind of economy so it wouldn't be necessary? Or I, I think so, yeah. And you have to remember that these facilities are private facilities operated by companies. So if they're not okay. making money off it, they're going to close it down. Okay. And in the longer term, do you think there are... What do you think of the sort of short? So, what do you think of the sort of short-term fixes that the department for that um, base, I think it is now, that covers energy could do? Well, to... I mean, just a key point on the storage side of things is um, the pressures on household bills are really going to come in the winter months because that's when people need gas to heat their homes. Um, so, getting more storage in place for then, I think, should be a, a big priority. And it was one of the real disappointments of the energy security strategy that there's nothing said about gas storage. Yeah. Um, so How quickly can you do that, though? Is it something you can do fairly, fairly pretty briskly? Pretty quickly, yeah. Because yeah. um, basically you're storing the gas in underground salt caverns or disused gas fields where it was pumped out previously. So. Okay, so those, those pl- the places you would do it already exist? It's yes. just about kind of retrofitting them? Retrofitting the pipelines, basically. Right, okay. So um, there, are, there is something we can do on that fairly important thing in reasonably short order, is the kind of yes, takeaway here. So. I mean, there's, there's other good measures we could do too, which would um, help people pretty immediately. Um, so, for example, 
moving the energy of the policy levy on household energy bills into general taxation. That would save households about £150 a year. And, you know, with bills going up by maybe £2,000 this winter, that's not a lot, but it's something. Um, we could... So is that £2,000 over the winter period? or so over well, sort of Sorry, that would be months? annual bills going up by another £2,000 okay. compared to what they are now. Right, OK. What is that in sort of percentage terms? Just just trying to calculate my own outlines uh, <laughs> here. <laughs> I mean, we're looking at similar magnitude rise to what we saw in April, basically. Right, OK. Um, perhaps more. That partly depends on what Putin does with the gas taps in Europe as well. Yeah, I do, I do slightly worry that I'm not sure people are completely prepared for the fact that this is coming down the line. And that, like, you think, oh, it's got so bad already. I can't imagine it's going to jump again in the same... Yeah, I mean, there's been some interesting polling done almost with various organisations. I think general public perception of the problems and inflation lags the reality still. And has done so consistently for months, even though households clearly are, you know, really feeling the pinch now. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to what we can do to help, or what the government can do to help households in a pinch in a minute. I just want to finish the sort of energy section, if you like, <laughs> with the, one of the big arguments this, this week and in the past months, really, has been on whether we should tax energy majors more, so BP, Shell, companies like that, whether we should have a windfall tax. I mean, as an, a sort of energy expert car what's your view on this um it strikes me that it, it's it's one of those things that the public love it mm. apparently eight in ten people or something say yes let's uh, do a windfall tax and there's a few points to make here one is there kind of already is a windfall tax because they have an enhanced corporation tax rate yep. for those companies two is what the effect might be on investment i mean is that a re- reasonable concern do you think very much so i i think firstly there's the obvious point that if we want more of something let's not tax it um but specifically related to the North Sea, it has a, had a very tough five or six years uh, since the oil price downturn in 2014. Lots of companies going out of business, making severe cuts to staff, uh, to wages. Um, and if we are going to keep investment going there, it needs a stable fiscal regime. And if we're just going to start dropping windfall taxes on it, then companies will cut their losses. And it's important to remember that people think, oh, it's BP, Shell, these massive integrated oil companies, they've got deep pockets. But actually, a lot of the fields in the North Sea these days are operated by much smaller companies that don't have the access to the credit facilities, don't have the global exposure of these companies. You are going to make much less attractive investment prospect for those companies who have come in specifically to sort of manage the mature fields in their long-term decline. It seems to me that there's a sort of bargain they're striking now, which is the Chancellor saying, all right, we won't have a windfall tax as long as you invest I mean, is this a sort of? This strikes me as a very strange way to do policy to sort of tell an industry what to mm. do at, with a kind of gun against their head, almost. I mean, you can see where the chance is coming from. It very much sort of coheres with his long-term vision for the economy. You know, his his May's lecture early the, earlier this year, the focus on um, investment in R and D, driving productivity growth, you know, creating Boris Johnson's high wage, high skill economy. So you can see how that coheres with his long-term vision. But you're right, it is, a, it is an odd way to conduct policy. It's almost sort of bully pulpit, like, we'll tax you if you don't invest. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just quite kind of concerned in general that our, like, the way we do tax, and especially in the last few years, is it's kind of it's quite knee-jerk. And, like, if I were looking at the UK from the outside, I'm thinking, is this actually, like, a particularly sort of stable business environment for me to go and launch a company in? Well, um, the big thing, of course, there is... I don't want to get too much of a tangent here, but the changes to the taxation regime that will be coming in, I think, James, is it right. next April? 
Yeah, April twenty three. So corporation Cor- tax. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a it, yeah. The and you you saw this with the the chancellor's um, speech last night to CBI, where um, he said, you know, oh, we want you to invest, and as the kind of quid pro quo of that, we're going to cut your taxes, and then you know all the business leaders sort of saying to the journalists, well, we're getting mixed messages here because. He's saying we're going to cut your taxes, but actually our taxes are due to go up um, as things stand. Um, and it'd be very welcome if they do come out with some changes to sort of capital allowances and things in the autumn. But at the moment, they are planning quite a significant increase in headline rate of corporation tax. So it's going um, from 19 to 25. Yeah. Basically. So, yeah, mixed measures there on yeah. personal tax as well. You've got this slightly odd approach of increasing the rates of national insurance, but then planning to cut the rates of income tax um, when they are relatively similar taxes you know there are some small differences between them but if you know you just sort of on things like pension income and rental income and that sort of thing but otherwise they're basically the same so what is the overall strategy here that you're trying to achieve with your tax plan yeah so i found that very odd at the time of the well it was a spring statement wasn't it yeah. it was very like it was almost People would say taking with one hand, giving with the other. It was almost taking and giving with the same hand. They were literally raising and lowering the same taxes in the same spring statement. It was very strange. Um, you mentioned pension income there, James. And I think it's worth saying, we talk about inflation a lot as if it's a generalised phenomenon, which in purely economic terms, yeah, you could say it's an aggregate increase in prices or something like that. But every kind of every household sort of has its own inflation rate in, in terms of what you might spend your, your money on and mm. certain there are certain categories of people who this is going to affect particularly badly I mean who are we talking about here I think students of, or rather graduates because um, their loan repayments are linked to retail price inflation which is higher they are although their, their repayment their monthly repayments won't change so their overall debt burden will okay so uh, we're so prolonging the student pr- debt prolonging how long okay. they'll pay it for but but because the 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 structure of the repayment system is basically like a tax you know you pay 9% above a threshold um so in that sense increasing the debt burden overall doesn't increase their sort of monthly cost okay but so the the, the people we really we're really concerned about here in terms of an immediate change in their living standards are people on benefits yep. and pensions Yes. If you think of pension, state pension is, is a benefit, basically, the way it works. So yeah. anyone in receipt of government funds, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, this is something that I uh, have been uh, talking about over the last few months and will continue to plug, uh, even though the government doesn't seem keen on doing anything on it. But, you know, benefits have gone up by 3.1% as of April. Uh, because that's what the measure of inflation was last September. Um, But that's basically the point at which inflation started really taking off, just after they took the measure. Um, And I know that, you know, there are some arguments from government about, you know, well, it's difficult to do ad hoc increases. We talk about this this computer says no thing, because Mm. Rishi Sunak said, oh, we can't do it because the computer system only lets you change the payments twice a year or something. I mean, this sounds absurd to me. I can't. So it is more difficult to do it for the legacy benefits okay. than it is for universal credit. There isn't any good reason to um, not do it to universal credit. And actually, um, the, the when they did the £20 uplift uh, during the pandemic, they excluded legacy benefits then anyway. They only did it to universal credit. So 
I'm not entirely sure why there would be such a massive aversion to just sort of saying, oh, well, we couldn't possibly do it because, yes, we could easily do it for universal credit, but what about legacy benefits? Because yeah. it's exactly what they did during the pandemic. Do you think there's a political element here where he's basically saying, look, we have to, like, kind of almost let people know that we're not in the COVID world anymore, that the government can't just constantly intervene? Yeah, there's probably an element of that. I, I think as well, you know, there were a lot of people during the pandemic uh, or as we were coming out of the pandemic, who was sort of saying, the £20 is great, we need to keep it. Um, and you know, people like us were saying, well, actually, there's better things you could do with that money. It's quite poorly targeted. Um, because the way it works was it was just £20 flat to everybody on benefits, whether you were a single young person or a couple with kids to, to feed. You're just, each household's getting £20, right? Whereas what I'm talking about doing is uh, a one-off operating of all benefits across the board that would then be offset later on. Because at the moment, what you're going to have is a huge operating next April because it's, it's going to factor in this big inflationary period that we'll have had up to September 2022. So people are going to have to wait basically eight months of penury. Before yeah, so if you, if you just operated by a bit more um, now uh, and then offset that, later on then there's no ongoing fiscal cost to that there's just you're just putting a bit more in this year and i don't know whether the you know the feeling in the treasury is that oh well it's a bit too complicated or that they're worried that as with the 20 pounds you get pressure to then keep it and do a a big uplift next time anyway i don't know but my view is that genuinely if you did it that way um you, it would be politically possible to do that. Does that? Um, what about pensioners? I mean, what do you think? Do you think the triple lock is sufficient, or do you think we're going to need some sort of change there? I think you probably would have to include pensioners in that policy, okay? Um, because uh, I think the state pension will have gone up uh, in April by the three point one percent that other benefits went up by. So uh, the you know you you would you would probably need to have a special rating for them as well. But the triple lock as a sort of long-term ongoing policy, then I don't think it's the right approach. Uh, I would get rid of that. Yeah, well, it's a, a drum we've banged a lot on, on CapEx. Yeah. I think especially for younger people, it seems a pretty bit of a kick in the teeth that uh, the policy seems very much weighted towards the over-65s in this country. Yeah, and the, but the difficulty with the triple lock um, uh, is, is a difficulty with the state pension, which is that the state pension isn't means-tested. It, it goes to basically everybody who is over state pension age. Uh, and there are some people who rely on it as basically their only income. Um, and so to say, oh, well, we're not gonna raise it because look how well off pensioners are these days. They're better off than working age people. The difficulty with that uh, in, a, in a time like this where we have got uh, a cost of living problem uh, is that you're potentially harming pensioners that are struggling to keep their homes. Just, you know, and that's Which is just why because, we have these supplementary payments. like Well, yeah, exactly, fuel, like warm home discount, winter fuel payment and all those sorts of things. Right, so. OK. Yeah, I mean, just to weigh in there, I think there's something like 5 million pensioner households where their main income source is fixed income and their discretionary spending power is really going to suffer because the inflationary force is in energy and food. Is that including their private pension as well? And when you say fixed income, yeah. Yeah. So that um, just means they don't have a job or a rental income or something like that? Yeah. yeah okay. um, and with inflation risk coming energy and food, you can't get rid of those. So it's your discretionary spending power that you lose. And that's really, really going to bite very sharply for a lot of people. So we see the headline rates of you know, 7, 9, 10% inflation. 
people are going to feel a lot more than that on a day-to-day basis, I think. It's going to feel like a lot more than that. Sure. It's been, I'm afraid, it's been quite a sort of a gloomy um, episode this week. It's, there's not really um, much avoiding it. Just to finish, I mean, the, the big argument I mentioned right at the top is how prolonged this is going to be. I mean, what, if you had to make an estimate, Carl, what do you think? The economist consensus seems to be that we've sort of, it'll top out over the next few months and then gradually decline into 2023. I mean, what's your... A lot of that is depends on things that we have no idea about, like how long the war mm. in Ukraine goes on, stuff like that. I mean, my instinct is to be more pessimistic than the consensus view, I think, um, because of what's going on in the energy markets, because expectations about inflation amongst central bankers and economists have so often in the last year or so significantly lagged what's happened. The Bank of England is currently expecting inflation to peak out at 10% later this year, um, I would not be surprised if we saw it getting closer to 15% by next year. Okay, but so things can only get worse. That's the, uh, uh, James, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is an extent to which it feels like the Bank of England is sort of just assuming that inflation eventually returns to normal of its own accord, um, purely on the basis that the factors that are currently driving higher inflation are external. Um, but you know, I can't see that happening in the in the sort of smooth way that all the nice Bank of England graphs suggest it will. Um, and much as I think, yeah, I, I think just in the same way that uh, many people underestimated the inflation problem, I think there'll probably be an extent to which there is a lingering sort of the opposite happens. Basically, that people, if anything, their expectations are slightly higher. Um, than they probably should be um, over the next year or two. Um, and we therefore have hopefully not, you know, 10% inflation for years to come, but, uh, you know, possibly a sort of uh, ongoing uh, elevated rate above the sort of yeah. 2% target for quite a few years. Yeah, it, yeah. it is worth noting that uh, in the um, spring statement, the data behind that, it was assuming that average real wages would not recover to 2020 to 21 levels until 2025 or 6 at the earliest. Yeah, that was really the most dispiriting bit of all those. Yeah. <laughs> it's a basically, and, and they haven't gone much above what they were even sort of 10 years ago. I mean, it's, it's been a very kind of flat sort of 10, 12 years for, for British living standards, which is all a very jolly note to, um, on which to, to fold things up. Um, guys, thank you both very much indeed. Um, do tune in uh, for our next sit down into CapEx podcast, which is with the pollster, James Johnson, who has done some really fascinating work on what the British people think about all this stuff that we've been talking about today, what the political implications are for Labour and the Conservatives. So that should be an absolutely fascinating one. And that will be with my deputy, uh, Alice Denby, uh, next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.